following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, I uh, popped into Whitcalls earlier in the week and had a little look around there. I was looking at the Christmas cards. I wanted to, because I had this passage on Mary in my mind, and I wanted to uh, get a sense of how Mary is depicted on Christmas cards. And uh, it turns out that was a complete waste of time because there's hardly any Christmas cards in Whitcalls that depict Mary or Jesus or anything to do with the Christmas story at all. So I went up to uh, the Christian bookshop up in Albany Manor and had a look around their Christmas card selection. And there's quite a bit more Mary up there. If you're looking for a traditional kind of Christmas card, they've definitely got a good selection. There's manger scenes and shepherds and wise men and all sorts there. And it's interesting to look at these Christmas cards with a view... Uh, toward Mary in particular. And you look at how Mary tends to be portrayed in Christmas cards, and there's some definite themes that emerge. Uh, Mary tends to uh, look, look kind of like she's in her 30s, roughly. Sometimes 20s, but she sort of looks roughly 30s. She's often very, very pale. She tends to be quite white. So we've got a very westernized version of Mary, usually, in Christmas cards. Not like the Jewish Mary, who actually existed. Not very Middle Eastern looking, but a very white westernized Mary. She's often wearing a blue robe, a lovely blue flowing robe. I don't know why blue, but that just tends to be what Mary uh, shows up in. Uh, her head is often glowing for some reason. I, you know, it's like maybe radioactive Mary. Or um, she's got a light bulb behind her head, something's going on, and she's glowing. She's often very illuminated. And you notice consistently, Mary is always very, very calm. She just, don't you think, she always looks peaceful. She's just a picture of serenity, a picture of tranquility. She's just sort of presiding over the whole situation. Sometimes she's kneeling at the manger, praying, even though she's just given birth. It's amazing. But she's just praying there to Jesus. Even when you see the pictures of Mary on the donkey traveling to Bethlehem, she's still just looking calm. And, and just like she's not phased by the whole thing. You know, yes, she's nine months pregnant. Yes, she's sitting on a donkey. She's in the scorching sun. She's traveling 150 kilometers, but she doesn't care. She's as calm, as cool as a cucumber. She's not worried. She's just this kind of tranquil person. And it's interesting, the whole thing kind of builds, I think, into a, a picture of Mary. It's like she's a sort of a superhuman kind of person. She's this sort of super spiritual. She seems like a kind of super saintly, super holy kind of person. Um, Mary doesn't seem like one of us. She doesn't seem like she's normal. She seems like she just kind of floats above life, floats above the realities of the whole situation rather than actually being in it. And then we give her all these names like the Blessed Virgin Mary and Holy Mother of God and Saint Mary. And we give her those kind of titles, which sound so esteemed and so important. And it all kind of elevates Mary to the super lofty spiritual status. And I think it creates a disconnect. It creates a disconnect between the Mary that we have created, the Mary the church has created, the Mary of Christmas cards, the Mary of nativity sets, the Mary of stained glass windows, and the real Mary, Mary of Nazareth, the person that we meet in this passage, the real woman who lived and died 2,000 years ago, who really gave birth to Jesus. And it's sometimes hard when you're looking at Christmas cards of Mary to get a sense of who this person really was. 
So what I want to do this morning is dig into this particular passage where we first meet Mary in the Gospels and try to get a sense of who this woman really was. Who, who is the real Mary? What's she all about? What do we learn about Mary? And more importantly, how does Mary point us toward God? How does Mary point us toward the Messiah? How does Mary give us a sense of what the story and the plan of God is that is going on here? So let's dive into the text. I want to just work through this, just step it through with you this morning. Let's see what we can learn here. So the first person we meet in this passage is not Mary. It's Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Now he's an interesting figure, Gabriel. He's one of two angels, only two angels in the Bible who are named Gabriel, and who's the other one? Michael, yeah. So Michael is the warrior angel. Gabriel is the messenger angel. That's how it works. They're real people, not fairy tales, real person, real angel, clearly a very important and senior angel in God's army of angels uh, because he is named. And Gabriel is tasked in the Bible, Old Testament and New, with delivering very important messages. So when God has really important news to announce, it's Gabriel who gives the news to people on earth. So in the very previous section of Luke, as Luke's gospel opens, the passage just before the one that Helen read, uh, Gabriel appears to Zechariah. He's just appeared to Zechariah the priest and told him that he is going to be the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. And there he appears to a priest and he appears in Jerusalem, very holy place, capital city, and he appears in the temple. So this is the kind of thing we expect Gabriel to do. This is, this is appropriate for an archangel of Gabriel's status to appear in the capital city, in the, in the temple, to a priest. That's kind of expected. But then we get to this very next passage, and the very next assignment that Gabriel is given is to go to a place called Nazareth. Nazareth is everything that Jerusalem is not. It is the opposite of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital city, it's the holy place. Nazareth is this out-of-the-way, little tiny rural community. It's just a tiny village. It's a kind of blink-and-you-miss-it sort of place. Nothing significant came from Nazareth. No one significant came from Nazareth. It had no claim to fame. It had no famous person that had come from this particular town. It was just this tiny, pokey little place. It was basically Narawahia. Right? That's what we're talking about with Nazareth. It's Narawahia. No offense if you come from Narawahia, but that's just what we're talking about. So Gabriel is sent to Narawahia, to Nazareth. That's where he goes, up in the northern countryside of Israel, tiny little town. And look who he is sent to. Verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So at least Joseph has some pedigree. Uh, Joseph can trace his lineage back to King David. So that's pretty impressive. That gives him a certain amount of standing within Jewish culture to be able to do that. He's connected to King David. But Mary has no important family tree at all. Mary has no great family lineage. There's no really significant person who was her great-great-great-great-grandfather or anything like that. She is a person of no social standing. She is a person of no real social significance. She's just an ordinary person. All we know about Mary... From this text is that she was a virgin and that she was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, in this culture, at this time, girls were typically married at 12 and a half years old. 12 and a half. Any 12 and a half year old girls here? Any 12 year old girls? 11 year old girls? So here we are, an 11 year old, how old are you? 12 and a half. 
So in the first century, you would be getting ready for your wedding day. You would be just about walking down the aisle to get married at 12 and a half. Isn't that staggering? It's stunning. I mean, we find that a bit disturbing, don't we, in modern culture, that a girl so young would be married. But this wasn't just Jewish culture. This was the way it worked in the Roman Empire. The minimum marriable age was 12. Most girls were married off within a year after that including Jewish girls. And before you were married, before you tied the knot, you had a betrothal period, which is kind of like our engagement, but more formal and more prearranged. And that would last a year before the wedding. So you put all that together, and we're talking about at this point, when, when Gabriel appears to Mary, Mary is very, very likely to be 11 or 12 years old. Now, we, it's amazing. We think of Mary as a woman, We think of Mary maybe in her 20s, maybe in her 30s or 40s. She was a girl. She wasn't even a teenager in all probability. She she was a preteen. And here she is going through this incredible ordeal. Parents of young preteens, particularly preteen daughters, imagine your daughter going through this. Imagine your daughter having Gabriel turn up in their bedroom and announce this kind of news. I mean, this would be traumatic. Wouldn't it? For Mary and for her parents, probably the first thing she did after Gabriel disappeared was to run and tell mum. She was still living under her parents' roof. She was still within the charge of her parents. Her parents would have had to help her through this whole ordeal. It's extraordinary. So Mary was just a girl. She was a very ordinary girl. She was just from an ordinary family. She was from a really ordinary village. There was nothing particularly super significant or super spiritual about Mary. And that's kind of the point. That's the point of this passage. This is not a story about how extraordinary Mary is. This is a story about how Mary, an ordinary girl, was used by an extraordinary God. Right? This is a story about how normal old Mary, this girl, this 11 or 12-year-old girl, was used by an unbelievable God within this unbelievable story that God wraps Mary up into and draws her into this story that is far bigger than she is and calls her to be part of something far greater than she is and uses her in an extraordinary way at a pivotal point in God's whole redemptive story. The point of this passage is not that we put the spotlight on Mary and look at how amazing she is and how saintly she is and how pious she is. The point is that we allow Mary to be a signpost to God and how unbelievable he is. And we, and we ask the question, what does Mary show us about God, about the Messiah, about Christmas, about God's extraordinary plan? So that's what I want to ask this morning. That's what I want us to ask together. How does Mary reveal God to us? I want to highlight three things that Mary's story reveals about God's story, about who God is, what the story is about, and then how we can respond faithfully to him as Mary does. So first thing is that Mary reveals God's extraordinary grace. Have a look. If you've got your Bible in front of you, have a look at verse 28. This is the greeting that the angel Gabriel gives to Mary. When he first shows up, here's what he says. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, that word greetings, the very first word out of the angel's mouth. Uh, it, was a, it was a common greeting. The word was a common greeting in the first century. It's the Greek word Cairo. It just meant hello, or it could mean rejoice. But the word is based on another word, the Greek word charis which is the word for grace. 
charis is a word that shows up all the way through the New Testament to describe the extraordinary grace of God that has come to us through Jesus. And that word was turned into a greeting, an everyday greeting in the first century, Cairo. It's how people would greet one another. So the very first word that the angel says to Mary is a word of grace. Isn't that wonderful? The very first word of the nativity story is a word of grace. Mary, grace to you is what the angel says. You know, the church has come up with some strange doctrines about Mary. Strange teachings, like Mary ascending to heaven before she died, Mary never having been stained by original sin, these kinds of ideas that make Mary out to be this kind of super spiritual, super holy person. But the point of the passage is not that Mary was amazing. The point of the passage is God's amazing grace that reaches down and touches Mary's life. Mary, grace to you is what the angel is saying. Not because Mary deserved it, not because Mary earned it, not because there was something meritorious within Mary, but purely as an act of a gracious God who touches the life of this child and says, Mary, you are going to be the recipient of unbelievable grace and favor because of God. And then this is amplified in the very next word that Gabriel says. Greetings, he says, you who are highly favored. Now the words highly favored in English, they translate one word in Greek. And that Greek word is based on the same word, charis, the word for grace. You've got the same concept again. This word could literally mean you who have been shown grace. You who have received grace. You who have received kindness. So basically what Gabriel's saying literally is, grace to you, you who have been shown grace. Grace to you, the one who has received grace. He's just layering grace upon grace upon grace in Mary's life. And then he says it again over in verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Guess what the word favor is? Grace, again, that's the word charis. That's directly the Greek word for grace. Gabriel is saying, Mary, you have found grace. Or maybe we would say grace has found you. Grace has come to you, Mary. Grace upon grace upon grace. Mary's life, Mary's story is the story of grace. The Christmas story is the story of God's extraordinary grace that has come down and reached into the life of this preteen and touched her life in an amazing way. And it gets even better. If you come back to verse 28 again, where Gabriel says, you who are highly favored, that word highly favored, there's one other time in the New Testament where that word appears, only once. And guess where it is? It's over in Ephesians 1 verse 6. You don't need to turn there, just listen to this. Let me read you this verse. The same word shows up again. This is Paul writing now in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given. That's the translation, that's the word. He has freely given us in the one he loves. So those words, freely given, it's exactly the same word as Gabriel uses to say, Mary, you are highly favored. Freely given, highly favored. It's both the same word, meaning grace. It's a derivative of grace. Do you know what that means? That means that the same grace that God showed to Mary is the grace that he shows to us in our lives. We have received the same grace that Mary has received, those of us who belong to Jesus. We haven't received the same job that Mary had, thank goodness. We're not all called to be the mother of the Messiah. But we have received the same grace. The grace of God that came to Mary is the same grace that now comes to you and I 
And the reason for that is because the child that Mary bore was the Messiah who was the bearer of God's grace for the whole world. And he's the one who has brought the grace of the Father to us, the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the extravagant kindness of God. Jesus has brought this into our lives so that we can be reconciled to God. That's grace. And we've received it. That means we are highly favored, not just Mary. We are highly favored now. We're in this story. We're all in Mary's shoes. We are the highly favored ones now because of Jesus. Are you excited about that? Come on, can you get a little bit excited about that the week before Christmas? Here we go. That means that you can come back and you can read that greeting in verse 28, the greeting that Gabriel gave to Mary. You could read that as a greeting to you. You could read that as the word of God spoken over your life. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Come on. Imagine if you got up every morning between now and Christmas and said those words to yourself. And you heard it as the blessing of God spoken over your life, the greeting of God spoken over your life. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. We need to remind ourselves that we are highly favored, not because of anything in us, not because we're better than anyone else or we've tried harder than anyone else, but purely because of the sheer mercy and pleasure of our loving God. We are highly favored. Memorize that greeting and speak it to yourself. It'll remind you of the grace of God that's come to you. So Mary points toward the extraordinary grace of God. But that's not all. The second thing that Mary shows us, that Mary's story shows us, is the incredible power of God. She shows us God's grace and she shows us God's power. Uh, Gabriel goes on to describe to Mary that she's going to have a son. He's going to be called Jesus. He will sit on David's throne. Uh, He'll reign over Jacob's descendants. And then... Mary has a very practical question for Gabriel. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so here we have the idea of the virgin birth. Now, this is something, if you've been a Christian for a while, we kind of get to Christmas, and this whole idea of the virgin birth, it's just kind of, you know, we don't think too much about it. It's like, yep, okay, understand that. Mary was a virgin. She had Jesus. Uh, That's fine. But it is worth just stopping for a moment and considering that to the rest of the world, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, it is. To the rest of the world, we're a bunch of fruitcakes for believing in this kind of stuff because this is a biological impossibility. You don't need to be a genius to figure that out. Even with modern-day fertility treatment, you cannot have this kind of situation where there is no male donor in the picture anywhere at all, and yet Mary's going to have a baby. And this is one of the reasons that Christians get held up to ridicule, because it's one thing to talk about the birth of Jesus, and it's a nice story, but then you start talking about this idea of the virgin birth, and for non-Christians, it's like, okay, now you're talking fairy tales. Now this is just, clearly this is all just shifted into the realm of myth. This is just fantasy. This is just kind of a nice religious story that religious people tell themselves at Christmas time to make themselves feel good. But this is not, this cannot be treated as serious history because this is a biological impossibility. Now, let me ask you this. If you are an atheist, then presumably the problem that you have with the virgin birth is the problem that you just can't create life out of nothing. Right? The problem is you can't just bring human life out of nothing without the necessary ingredients. But then the question is, of course, 
How then do you explain the origins of life in the beginning? How do you explain how life started at the beginning, whenever the beginning was, and however life started? How do you explain the something out of nothing that happened then? Listen to this quote by Stephen Hawking, who's a world-renowned physicist, not a Christian. This guy's an atheist, and here is his atheistic explanation for the origin of life. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. Spontaneous creation. Sounds a bit like the virgin birth to me. Spontaneous creation. And this is an atheist describing how the universe began. So if you're an atheist, then by definition, you believe that at some point, life came from nothing. So it's not a question of whether or not you believe in life from nothing. It's a question of whether you believe it happened in the beginning or whether you believe it happened in the case of Mary specifically with one life. And maybe, therefore, the, the idea of the virgin birth is not quite so ridiculous. After all, we all believe in life out of nothing at one point or another, atheist, Christian, or whatever. The difference, of course, is that Christians believe that behind both of these events, the origin of life in the beginning and the virgin birth of Mary, of Jesus through Mary, behind both of these events, there is a loving God. That's the difference. We believe there's a designer. We believe there's an intelligent God who has a plan, who has a clue, who is sovereign, who has a story and has brought life about. And we believe that these two events are in fact inseparably connected. That just as at the beginning, God brought life out of nothing. That's what we call creation ex nihilo, life from nothing. That's what God did. You read Genesis 1 and 2, life out of nothing. And then you come to Mary and what does God do? He does it again creation ex nihilo creation from nothing just as in the beginning he breathes life into a a, a, a man a person and breathes and become, they become a living being they become Adam now God breathes into Mary so to speak and brings forth a new human life brings forth the new Adam the new head of a new humanity what God is doing is bringing about a whole new creation what God is doing is, is creation reborn, creation renewed, creation reimagined. This is a lot bigger than just the specific birth of Jesus, one miracle of the virgin birth. This is a huge story that's unfolding here. Mark alluded to it earlier. This is the story of creation being renewed. Just as God brought creation from nothing in the beginning, so he is bringing creation from nothing again, a new human life who marks the beginning, a new beginning for creation and all of humanity. There's a huge cosmic story going on here and we don't want to miss it. And then there's one other illusion before we move on, one other illusion or echo to an earlier part of the biblical story. Have a look at this verse 35 where the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, that word overshadow, that's a really important word. Mary would have heard this word before because it's the equivalent word that's used in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus to describe the tabernacle. The story of the tabernacle. We went through Exodus uh, last year. Do you remember this? And the tabernacle was the dwelling place in the wilderness of God's presence among his people. The tabernacle of Israel, that was the place where God became Emmanuel. 
That was the place where God became with his people, became present with Israel in the wilderness, the location of his presence on earth. And right at the end of the Exodus story, you have this climactic passage in chapter 40 where it says, the cloud overshadowed the tabernacle. Literally, that's the word. It overshadowed the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This picture of the presence of God filling the space on earth where God now comes to reside among his people. And what Gabriel is doing, the genius of it, I mean, you think Mary would have known the story. Mary would have known the Exodus story. Her mum and dad would have taught it to her. She may have memorized it. She would have known about the tabernacle in the wilderness. And Gabriel now comes to her and says, in effect, Mary, you know that story that you've learned as a child, the story of your people, the story of the presence of God filling the tabernacle. Mary, for nine months, you are going to be the tabernacle. Mary, for nine months... You are going to be the living, breathing tabernacle of God on earth. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary, like the cloud overshadowed the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord is going to fill your body, Mary, physically, just as the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And you are going to be so full of the glory of the Lord that you are going to bring forth this new human life. And then when you give birth to the Messiah, He will be the living tabernacle. The, the location of God's presence among his people on earth. What an extraordinary thing for Gabriel to say. What an overwhelming thing for a, for a pre-teenage girl to try and get her head around. I'm going to be the tabernacle of God. But Gabriel uses the story because Mary would have known the story. And perhaps it was a way, it was a hinge for her to understand something of what was going on. The power of God is going to overshadow her. And she will be literally the tent of God on earth. She will be the tent of the Messiah on earth. It's an extraordinary thing, and it points us towards the incredible power of God. We just don't want to become so familiar with the idea of the virgin birth that we cease to be amazed by the power of God at work, the miracle he has brought about, and the incredible new beginning for the whole world that this represents. Mary points us towards the incredible power of God. And finally, Mary reveals, firstly, God's extraordinary grace, she reveals, secondly, God's incredible power. And then finally, Mary shows us what real faith looks like. Real faith in real life. Even though this is a unique story, look at Mary's response in verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. That word servant is the word doulos. It's a word for a common household slave. And Mary would have been familiar with slaves. She would have seen servant girls around Nazareth. Uh, doing the bidding of their masters. Mary, in a sense, Mary would have functioned a bit like a household servant to her mum, helping with the cleaning, helping with the cooking, helping with the chores around the house. She knew the role of a servant girl. And when Gabriel makes this stunning announcement to her, Mary just places herself in the role of a common servant girl and says, I'm the servant of Yahweh. I'm just here to do my master's bidding. And she places herself in submission to God. The King James Version translates it this way, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. That's what Mary says. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. It's a stunning response when you think about it. Given all the reactions Mary could have had, could have freaked out, could have fainted, could have run to her mum talking of angels in her bedroom, but instead she just stays put. And she says, I'm the Lord's servant. 
Martin Luther paraphrased Mary's response as this, Mary saying, I am just the workshop in which God operates. That's what she's saying. This humble expression of trust. And we should be amazed at Mary's faith and we should be impressed by it. It's pretty inspiring. But we've also got to be careful that we don't idealize Mary's faith because it was a real faith that she had. But it was still very raw and it was still very human. It was still very earthy and gritty, this faith. When Gabriel first announces or greets Mary, we read that Mary was deeply troubled at his words, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Gabriel has to calm her down. He has to say, do not be afraid, Mary. Mary would have been terrified. She would have been confused. She would have been frightened. She would have been anxious, apprehensive, uncertain, overwhelmed, maybe a little bit excited. There would have been this whole gamut of emotions swirling around within Mary at the time. This is an overwhelming experience for her. And we see this picture of Mary on Christmas cards where she's this serene, calm, tranquil presence. I don't think it would have been like that at all. I think Mary probably said these words through quivering lips, possibly with with tears streaming down her cheeks. She would have been frightened, she would have been shaking, and yet she still says, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. I'm the Lord's servant. That's real faith. I'm sure Mary would have been filled with doubts. She could have understood only a fraction of what was actually happening to her at this time. This was overwhelming, and yet even in the midst of that, Mary just says, I am the Lord's servant. And throughout Jesus' life, Mary's faith continues to be up and down. There's a moment in the Gospels where Mary comes to Jesus. Jesus' mum turns up with some of Jesus' brothers and tries to take him away. They basically think he's gone insane. They think he's a lunatic. And they come and try and take him home to calm him down. And Jesus gives the stinging rebuke to Mary and his brothers. He turns to his disciples, his followers, and he says, This is my mother and my brothers, the ones who do the will of God. That would have been a tough thing for Mary to hear. But she stays with him. She keeps trusting. And you get all the way to the end of Jesus' life. You get to the death of Jesus. And where do you find Mary? At the foot of the cross. There she is. We know it. She's named there. Jesus even speaks to her from the cross. There she is. Imagine the agony that would have filled her mother's heart, watching her son beaten, bruised, tortured, whipped, naked, dying on the cross. But she's still there. She must have wondered in that moment whether Gabriel's words were going to come to anything at all as Jesus is about to be crucified, about to die. But she's still there. And then after Jesus' death and after his resurrection and after his ascension, you get through to the book of Acts. And where's Mary? She's there named among the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, she's specifically named the mother of Jesus as being one of the disciples. She's still there. She's still hanging on after everything's happened. And so she became one of those people who became the early church. She became part of the early church movement. And that means on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, guess what? Mary was there. She was in the upper room. She would have been filled with the Spirit on that day like everyone else was filled with the Spirit, except it was different for her because she'd had this before. She was the only person in the room that day that had experienced this before. She was filled with the Spirit when Jesus was conceived and then filled again on the day of Pentecost, but this time not for her son, but for herself. Filled with the Spirit of God, highly favored, a daughter of God, part of God's family, and now a follower of Jesus. Mary shows us what what a real faith looks like, not a perfect faith, 
not a faith without any doubts where you've got it all together and you've got all the answers, but a, a real rough, raw, everyday life kind of faith which just goes up and goes down, but through it all still says, I am the Lord's servant. That's what Mary teaches us to say, just humbly and simply in the midst of whatever's going on in your life, just to say, I am the Lord's servant. How easy is it for you to say that? When you don't understand what on earth God is doing. When you're overwhelmed, as some of you are this morning, just overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by stuff. How easy is it for you to still just quiet in your heart and say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. When you've got no idea why God is doing what he's doing in your life or why he's not doing what you want him to do and need him to do and why your prayers aren't being answered and you've got no idea why this stuff is happening and why God doesn't fix it, are you still willing to say even then, I don't understand this, but I'm still the Lord's servant. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. That's all I am. Mary teaches us to trust beyond what we can see, beyond what we can understand, beyond what we can feel. And maybe for you today, it's a day to say those words for the first time in a long time. Maybe you've just drifted away, drifted away, drifted away, and there's a huge gaping chasm now between you and God, and today is simply a day to come back to the Father and say again, behold, I want to be the servant of the Lord. I want to be a slave to Christ. I'm sick of being a slave to my own selfishness. I'm sick of being a slave to my own ambition. I'm sick of being a slave to my own stupidity. I want to be a slave to Christ. I want to again be a servant of the Lord. Maybe for you today's a day of homecoming to say those words again from the heart. So as you journey through this week towards Christmas, whenever you catch a glimpse of Mary this week, whether you see her on a Christmas card, you see her in a nativity set, maybe you see her on a stained glass window of a church as you pass by, think about who she is. Think about Mary, but not the Mary of history, not this mythical figure that's been handed down to us. Think about the real Mary. Think about Mary of Nazareth, this girl, this 12-year-old girl. And think about what she shows us about who God is and about what he is doing in our lives and in this world. Let Mary remind you of God's extraordinary grace and hear that greeting spoken over your life. Greetings, you who are highly favored, you who have been shown Grace, the Lord is with you. Let Mary point you towards those words of the Father spoken over your life. Let Mary point you towards God's incredible power and allow your heart to have this childlike wonder again at the miracle of the virgin birth, the miracle of the incarnation that stands as a centerpiece of our faith. Ask God to give you fresh awe, fresh wonder, and fresh worship in your heart as you consider that this Christmas. And then allow Mary to show you what real faith looks like. Not a perfect faith, but a faith that's shot through with doubt sometimes, all kinds of questions, all kinds of difficulties, but still through it all can say, I am just the servant of the Lord. Let's let Mary, ordinary old Mary, point us toward the extraordinary God we serve. Amen. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for this woman, Mary, this young girl who we meet in the pages of Scripture. Thank you that she was a real person, God, and in your wisdom, you, you chose her for an incredible role and an incredible moment. We thank you for her life. We thank you that she was willing to say, I am the Lord's servant. And so that through her, so much hope 
has come into the world because of Jesus. Father, we pray for this day and in the coming week that you just break through the clutter and the noise of everything else that's going on in our lives at the moment, even everything that's going on in our head right now as we've got a million thoughts swirling around. But God, would you just break through all of that and would you remind us through Scripture of your incredible grace, your incredible power, and would you call us, would you renew within us a fresh faith to listen and to respond and to trust you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.